You know, in March of 2012, there was a, uh, a Texas newspaper in the Antonio, San Antonio area that, that reported this following story. It said that uh, Patrick Green has a long history of disliking and combating Christians. At one point, Green, an outspoken local atheist, threatened to sue Henderson County about the yearly manger display at the courthouse. My wife and I had never had a Christian do anything nice for us, Green said in a local newspaper interview. But all of that changed in March of 2012 when the 63-year-old Green learned that he needed surgery for a detached retina. But he didn't have the money to pay for the surgery and he had to give up his cab driving job. So when Jessica Cryer, a member of Sand Springs Baptist Church nearby, heard about his situation, she told her pastor, who then called Green. And Green said, well, if you really want to contribute something, we need groceries. Green thought that if anything, he'd see 50 bucks, maybe 100 bucks. But a few days later, the church sent a check for $400. More checks soon followed. The flabbergasted Green said, I thought I was in the twilight zone. These people are acting like what the Bible says a Christian does. Now, rather than trying to remove the manger display... He's a fan. He said, in fact, he would like to add his contribution, a star for the top of the nativity scene. That one line jumps out at me. These people are acting like what the Bible says a Christian does. Well, what does a Christian do? What are we supposed to be doing? You remember Jesus' question in Luke 6, to those who were following them, Following after him, he said to them, So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And he asked that question in Luke's gospel in the immediate context and the teaching of of his followers to love their enemies, to not judge others, and within the larger context of uh, some, some quotes that are very, very similar to the words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. So for four weeks now, we have been studying what it is that a Christian does. We are looking at it from the standpoint of what it means to be the body of Christ in the world. And if we're really the body of Christ, which means we are His presence in the world, if we really believe that, then that means that we really are His hands and His feet and His heart and His voice, which is exactly what Scripture means when it refers to God's people as the body of Christ. If we really believe that, then we're going to be faced, quite honestly, we're going to be faced with challenging situations in relationships with others because the Spirit of Christ who is in His people brings them face-to-face with situations involving others that will push them out of their comfort zone. Jesus is always interested in pushing his people out of their comfort zone because he's big on trust in the Heavenly Father. We've talked about that before. You know, when we find ourselves in a place where we have to trust God in obedience to what he has called us to do, we grow and we stretch. And the presence and the grace of Jesus is seen in our lives, whether it is understood by those who are observing us or not. Great example of that. 
You recognize the name Martha Mullen? You know that name? She's the woman who worked hard to find a cemetery for the body of Tamil and Sarnev. He was the older of the two brothers, the Boston Marathon Bombers. There was no cemetery in the Boston or greater metro area that was willing to take his body. They were concerned about public outcry and protest. Well, Martha Mullen is a Christian. She began researching, looking around, contacting Islamic funeral services. And eventually, she located a Muslim cemetery in Virginia that would accept the young man's body. NPR did an interview with her. And she was asked why she, as a total stranger to the Sarnev family, would get involved at all, especially given the risk that she might herself be targeted by angry protesters. You know that's real. There was a lot of tension and drama around that scenario. Here's what she said. Listen closely. It made me think of Jesus' words, love your enemies. I felt that Tamerlan was being maligned, most likely because he was a Muslim. And Jesus tells us to, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is not just someone who you get along with, but someone who is alien to you. If I'm going to live my faith, then I'm going to do that which is uncomfortable and not necessarily what's comfortable. I feel like it was the right thing. And it's important to be true to the principles of your faith. This morning we're going to read the last exhortations of Paul to the Romans in chapter 12, where we've been for a number of weeks. And I think it's especially important for us to remember where Paul started us in this journey, being living sacrifices at the beginning of chapter 12. Remember, as people of God, we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, and we do that in view of God's amazing mercy and grace for us. Our lives are to be different because we now have the opportunity to think differently. Along with our salvation and the presence of the Spirit of God comes the renewal of our minds. And Paul exhorts the believers in Rome and the believers at Applewood, remember these words, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The renewed mind gives us opportunity to look objectively at the patterns of the world versus the patterns that belong to the values of the kingdom of God. And so then Paul launched into what it means to be God's people, put together by God, chosen by God, handpicked by God, if you will, put together in this place, gifted, living a life together that is empowered by His Spirit, led by His Spirit, that will reflect the nature and the character of God. And that would be a powerful witness to the presence of people who are watching the Christians in Rome. It is a powerful witness to the presence of people who are watching God's people who are part of Applewood Community Church. And in the second half of the Body Life series, we have looked more closely at the dynamics of what that looks like. Love must be sincere. We're to hate anything that gets in the way of being devoted to one another with a family-like love. We're to honor one another above ourselves. 
We need to be encouraging one another to keep our spiritual zeal in serving the Lord. Encourage one another to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. We need to share our lives and our resources with one another. And this morning we come to the final section. And Paul ends by moving from what has been more of sort of an inward focus on, here's the dynamics of what it looks like to live life together as God's people, to sort of turning his, his focus outward to a more intense No, that's probably not strong enough to a super intense teaching on how we're to live both individually and collectively in our attitude toward those who do not share our faith in Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I think this is the hardest teaching in Romans chapter 12. I really, really do. There's probably not anything that that clashes more severely with not only the, the culture of our hearts, redeemed people that we are, we still wrestle with the, uh, the vestiges of the sin nature that surfaces its ugly head from time to time. But it also clashes with the culture, I think, in, in which we live. So, let's stand and let's read the, uh, the very end of Romans chapter 12 together. Here we go. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not think you are superior. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Paul starts off with those very challenging words, outward focus, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Oh, sure, I do that all the time, don't you? Every day, rejoicing and weeping with those who rejoice and weep could be understand as, uh, it could be taken to, to be understood as, as actions that God's people not only have with one another, but, but towards non-believers as well. But then it's, it's almost parenthetical. He reminds them of the necessity, and we've seen these themes before, to live in harmony with one another, to not be proud or conceited with one another. Uh, be quickly willing to associate with those who, who are different than we are, and particularly in, in the Roman community, the differences in class that were very distinct. And what a challenge that would have been to that church that was very much a part of a system that was entrenched in, in social levels and people who, who did not associate with one another. As God brings people who are different into fellowship. Our call, our Our point of obedience to him is to recognize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
There is no one greater. There is no one lesser. I think because of the unity and the oneness that Paul desires for them to, to share together and for us to share together, this is a reminder of those things before he launches in to what I think is the most challenging teaching in Romans chapter 12. And he knows that it is unity and oneness and solidarity together that's going to give them the ability to be obedient and to be a source of encouragement to one another. What's the first thing that he says? Heather, can we put that on the screen? Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay evil for evil. The word that we translate repay, it is a word that literally means to to pay off, discharge what is due. It it is a word that is often found in ancient literature that that refers to, to a debt that needs to be paid to wages that need to be paid, taxes, uh, things that have been promised under oath. So it carries with it sort of a legal connotation that this is what has been done for you and now you are obligated to pay back what is owed. Paul is saying to the believers in Rome, they are not obligated to pay back evil for evil. And remember, we've talked about how the culture of Rome was very much centered on the lordship of Caesar. Caesar is Lord, was the saying of the day. And of course, Christians often got themselves in trouble when they would respond, well, no, no, really Jesus is Lord. That went over really well with the Caesar and, and, and the rulers of Roman society. Plenty of evil that was being done to the believers in Rome. Paul is saying, you are not obligated to pay evil back with evil. Okay, neighbor question. Can we put it up, Heather? Where does this sense of of a payback obligation come from? I know it seems like an obvious answer, but just go ahead and ask your neighbor that. Where does this sense of payback? You do something hurtful for me to me, and, and, and I'm going to do something hurtful back. You say something wrong, I'm going to say something wrong and hurtful back. Where does that come from? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> bad parenting. <laughs> the influence of bad friends, right? <laughs> That's your message, by the way. I had already seen it. It is muddy. (laughs) What are you going to (laughs) do? We're going to do it. Okay, we ready? What do you think? Where does this this sense of, of, of payback and obligation come from? Anyone? Which is probably what was the standard of the day. Good point, good point. What else? Okay, sure, sure, absolutely. What else? Oh, okay. You don't think so? He's big enough, he doesn't really need us? Okay. <laughs> what else do you think? Anyone? John? Now, on the idea of judgment that Jesus was, was talking about, uh, you know, is to, to write others off, to assign them to... Yeah, okay. Of course. Okay. 
And, and, and would you agree that in our best moments, there, there can be a sense of sort of this, this, this righteous indignation that wells up within us? I, I would go so far as to say, I, I don't think this is heretical, that, um, that, that some of this in the good moments, in the right moments, flows from the fact that we are creating the image of a God who is very concerned about justice and righteousness and, and, and fairness and equity. Uh, I, I use those terms a little loosely um, because sometimes we think in terms of fairness and, and it doesn't seem to, to jive with, with what the Lord understands as, as fair. But I think there's a chance that it originates in some respect from the fact that we are creating His image I think what happens, though, is we have this sin nature that takes it and perverts it and makes it about me. Maybe he doesn't do that to you, but it, but it, it does about me. I, I don't get nearly concerned about injustices that are done to you, but I am fuming about them when they're done to me. Can you relate to that at all? So I think it's possible that it's, that it's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. God gives us this sense, this need of wanting justice and what is right, fair treatment of others, honesty. But the sin nature wants to to turn that to something, to pervert that, to make it something that we have to have for self, no matter what it may cost. And my concern far too often is for those things related to me than for others. And so you add to that the fact that we live in this country with its amazing legal system that wants people to have due process, gives people rights to take legal action that provides for proper recourse and protection. It's not perfect, but that's a part of of our system. It becomes very complex. The believers in Rome did not have that legal system. So I think to understand what Paul is really driving at We have to overlay the words of Jesus that we find Paul using in Matthew 14, probably from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Again, the words that are used. Bless is a word that means to praise, to celebrate with praises, to invoke blessings, to consecrate with solemn prayers. The word curse carries the same idea. To, to call down evil and curses upon someone. So let me ask you, these are believers that Paul is writing to. Who do they pray to? Yeah, they're praying to God. They're praying to Yahweh through, through the lordship of his son, Jesus, who they are serving and have surrendered to. Paul is saying, no matter how hard your life is and no matter how nasty people are, don't Pray curses upon them. Pray blessings upon them. Don't ask God to get them or make their lives miserable or punish them. Instead, pray for His blessing upon their lives. Seriously? That's what Paul is saying. Remember, this is all in view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy And pleasing to God, Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. As God has graciously offered to us his love and his grace, this is the bottom line. As God has done this for us, 
and we did not deserve it. So his people, as the body of Christ, living in a fallen and broken world, offer grace to those who do not deserve it. And we don't do it for the reward. We do it because that is what profoundly models the love of God in Christ to a lost and broken world. Does that make sense? The world hits. We don't hit back. The world gets angry at us. We don't get angry in return. The world dishonors us. We do not dishonor in return. The world calls us names and lies about us. We do not call names and lie in return. And unfortunately, my friends, the Christian church has not done well in its reputation for living out kingdom values in response to the, inf- the, the injustices and the unfairness of the world in which we live. But believe it or not, there are Christians in the world who actually live like this. Christians in Pakistan comprise 2.5% of the total population. It is an officially Islamic nation. The Reverend Munawar Shah, I think is how you say his name, he's a Christian leader in the northern city of Peshawar, and he speaks about the government-endorsed social and economic suffocation of the Christian community in Pakistan. Pakistan's anti-blasphemy laws pose a constant threat for Christians. In addition, he states that in his province alone, local mobs have publicly urinated on Bibles and closed four churches. However, despite this overt hatred towards Christians, this pastor isn't bitter. Instead, he works for better relationships with his Muslim neighbors. He views the persecution as an opportunity to display Christ's love to others, even militant Muslims like Al-Qaeda members. And here's how he summarizes his church's response to persecution. He says it this way, We clean the wounds of those who hate us and those who would kill us. Paul would say, You've got nothing to worry about as the people of God. People can't kill you because you're already dead. You're dead to self and you're alive to Christ. And I think this is one of the most challenging principles that we face in this text. Like Jesus, spoken about by Peter in his letter to believers who were scattered through the region as a result of persecution. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. How do we go about this? Paul gives us three suggestions. We are, first of all, careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Now, Paul's not suggesting that we do what everyone thinks is right. What he means here is that we are careful about doing what is right according to God. We do what is right in every situation because there are always the eyes of people who are looking at us. Do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Paul says nothing here about whether they'll appreciate it or not, but it's incumbent upon God's people that they do what is right. We must be people who are steeped in the values of the kingdom of God. Values like grace is undeserved. Values like anger does not accomplish the righteous life that God desires. Values like God allows and uses testing trials to refine our faith and trust in Him. Values like God is interested in my holiness, not so much in my happiness. And on and on and on those values go. How well do we know the values of the kingdom? I've said it before. We learn the values by being a people who are in His Word. And living those together and encouraging one another together. Reminding one another of the truth. And remember, it's our life together where there is great strength 
and great encouragement. We remind one another of these truths. Paul says, secondly, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. I love those words. If it is possible, suggest that it's probably not. But as far as it depends upon you, Paul says, you do everything humanly possible to bring peace between yourself and those who are your persecutors, those who who don't like you. Paul is saying that at the end of the day, we need to be a people who have left no stone unturned in our efforts to make relationships right. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples and one of them said, Lord, how many times should we forgive someone who sins against us? Up to seven times? That was a magnanimous offer in that day, according to the Pharisees. And Jesus said, times 70. In other words, there's no end to the forgiveness that the people of God bestow upon others because there is no end to the forgiveness that their Heavenly Father has bestowed upon them. It's this sense that Paul is talking about. We never withhold forgiveness. We never withhold love. And remember, love is an action that is done for the sake of someone's well-being. I can say I love you. If I'm never doing anything to make your life better, I don't really love you. Talk is cheap. So we never withhold love. We never stop giving grace. We are always concerned about others. You know what's so hard about this? It minimizes the importance of self. That's such a bummer. And it maximizes the importance of God's character that is revealed through our words and our actions. And I've said this before. If we really understand what Paul is teaching here, it would be a whole lot easier just to die. Physically, just be dead. Living sacrifice thing is just so challenging. But if I just really die, I mean, it's just one and done. I'm gone to heaven. But living sacrifice, i got to do this kind of stuff day in and day out. Constantly called by the Spirit of God to examine my thoughts, my motives, my responses to people who aren't really making my life nice. Ah, but there is some relief. Paul tells... The Roman and Applewood believers, not to take revenge, but to leave room for God's wrath. Yes! <laughs> Somebody's going to kick their butt! Finally, someone is going to take up my cause! Unfortunately, Paul doesn't give any time frame. He didn't say when it's going to happen so I can be around to enjoy it. He says, leave room for it. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So, the third the third challenge from Paul in living this out is to trust in God, to trust in His character, to trust in His timing. (laughs) And then he ends with these words that we read to, uh, to give food to your enemy, to give water to your enemy. Instead of vengeance, instead of payback, we're to to feed them and, and give them drink. Great. Just what I wanted to do. Oh, and that's, that's our hope, John, isn't it? Woohoo! Heaping coals on. That sounds a little hot and uncomfortable. And that's a reality. It's a reality. But what about those burning coals on his or her head? As much as I like the sound of that, I have to put it into the category of it is God's work and. 
God is ultimately, if we, especially reading through Paul, entire book of Romans, it's all about reconciliation between God and sinful people. As much as I want God to come to my rescue, and so I put those burning coals on the head of an individual and just waiting for them to repent and to realize how wrong they've been to me and how wonderful I really am. God's purpose in that is to bring them to repentance to himself. It's exactly. Not to us. That may happen. That may happen. But here's where we come back to. And and again, this is, I think, the hardest teaching in Romans chapter 12. Are we a people who longs for God's burning coals on the head of our enemies because doggone it, it's about time they get what they deserve? Or do we long for God's burning coals of repentance, which in the Old Testament often stood for personal shame at one's actions and and contrition over what has been done wrong? Do we long for that to happen in the life of a person because that means it turns their heart toward God and they recognize their need of who he is. They recognize the sin in their life. They fall, hopefully, on their face in repentance before him. A little food, a little water. Attention to his or her needs. And it's possible that they might feel some pain. Yeah, and what we're hoping for is that they will feel the pain of a life of sin and rebellion before their creator. Some of you know the name Haddon Robinson, and I'll be quick. In fact, praise team, why don't you come up and uh, prepare us to respond as I, as I read this. He says, 20 years ago, my wife and I went through what was, for us, the most difficult experience in our lives. Uh, Robinson is a, he's a, was a pastor for many years. He's a preaching emeritus pastor at Gordon-Conwell. He's a prolific author. Um, <clears throat> writes this story. This was the most difficult experience of our lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were sued by a young woman whom we had tried to help. On several occasions, we had gone over to clean her house. <clears throat> We'd had her over for dinner. And when we got that suit, it just felt like we had tried to wash someone's feet and got kicked in the mouth. She blamed us for things which we weren't responsible for. The construction of the case was something that was just amazing to us. That suit came after we had begun teaching at a seminary. And I think I was down, really down emotionally. My wife and I used to walk together. And we would commit the situation to the Lord. In fact, every time we drive past that area, my wife says to me, remember the walks that we had? Well, I wish I could tell you, he says, that I was pure and noble. But at that time, I would have been happy if this woman had gotten run over by a truck. But love doesn't think like that. I found that as we prayed about it every day, there came a time when I could no longer talk about it to the Lord. I'd say, Lord, you know what's on my heart, and you know the details. You do it. And then there came a time when I prayed, Lord, you know that I think she's done us wrong, but I may be wrong. If vengeance is necessary, you do it. And again and again, I found myself thinking, 
I serve a God who has forgiven all my sins, and they are many. And on the basis of that, I can begin to forgive her. Robinson says, I tell this story not because I'm an expert about how to show forgiveness, but I do know that when in the power of the Spirit and the love of God, you work with it, you can take that truth about love off the pages of Scripture, like we have talked about in Romans 12. And you can see it come to work in your own life. May that be true for us. May the world see in us the character of Christ, the values of His kingdom, lived out for the sake of His glory, no matter the cost.